Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, how special is it to hear Laura and Lucy, mother, daughter, on this special Mother's Day to share with us the scriptures? Uh, and I have to tell you, from Julianne uh, to these liturgical dancers uh, to the music that we've heard to legalized running in church, um, <laughs> has just been a, a marvelous thing. And, and also to have Ken Miedema among us. My goodness, what a gift this man is. Now, I, I did challenge him at the 8.30 service, and I said, Ken, I'm, I'm really curious as to see what you're going to do with this message, because he has a way of hearing the word and then translating that musically in ways that touch our hearts, and uh, our hearts have been touched this morning in a special way. We're grateful to you, sir, for being with us. Uh, his assistant, Beverly, very gracious. We uh, are grateful that you're here to all of our mothers, grandmothers, and those women in our lives who have influenced us in ways uh, you have shown us your faith in the way that you walk and talk. We're eternally grateful to you. We're continuing our series that we started last week on Philippians in, on this theme we're calling Joyful. The mission of Paul to Philippi, we know, occurred during his second of three mission trips. It was his first advance of the gospel onto European soil. So from Troas in Asia Minor, he is going west. He's sailing to a place called Neapolis. And then Paul, Silas, Timothy, 
And Dr. Luke, he carried his personal physician with him. Paul never worked as a solo act. He was always in teams. He was always training as he was doing ministry. And so when they docked in Neapolis, they walked 10 miles inland to a thriving Roman colony called Philippi that was mostly populated by retired Roman soldiers. It was there for three months that Paul and team preached, taught, and discipled. In fact, you may remember their first convert in Philippi was a businesswoman. In fact, she was a fashion designer. She worked in purple cloth in a place called Thyatira in Greece. Her name was Lydia. They met Lydia down by the creek bank. They were having a prayer meeting at the Gingates River, and that was the first convert in the West in Europe. We said last week that pastors are not supposed to have their favorite churches, and you are not supposed to have your favorite preachers, though I know you do. We all do. But Philippi was Paul's favorite place. In all of his travels, in all of his ministries, in all of the church plants, it was Philippi that was the favorite. We know that because in four chapters, he uses the word joy or rejoice 14 times. So there's a deep bond between pastor and people. We concluded last week by noting the return address on this letter. If you'd looked closely, the postmark on the envelope would say Rome. Where Paul was writing from, he was under house arrest, he was on death row. He's facing his final days, and yet when you read the letter, it seems that Paul is not over-anxious about his situation. In fact, he's more concerned about the church than he is about himself. The congregation had just delivered a care package, hand-delivered by one of their own members named Epaphroditus, who would eventually become the bishop of the church in Philippi. And now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back home with a letter, with this message. He is not lamenting his own situation. He's encouraging them in their place. I love that about Paul. Paul is one of those pastors, unlike many clergy, who is not self-absorbed. He doesn't love to hear everything he has to say. He he has no self-pity about his situation. He is becoming selfless. And I think, though I may be mistaken, that this pastor had a maternal instinct. Pastors often do. Pastoring and parenting is very similar. I can tell you from 40 years of experience that pastoring is parenting on steroids. And what works at church does not always work at home. PKs, preacher's kids, can be among the worst. They typically go one of two ways. TOs, we call them theological offspring. But pastors are by nature typically caregivers parents to the community. And so it was with Paul. We've been doing some caregiving at our home recently. We have a new family that has taken up residence with us. We didn't know it was happening until it happened. She built her nest on our front porch, under the eaves, 
and then promptly laid her eggs. We can no longer go out the front door to get the mail. The delivery men don't deliver anymore because when you approach the front porch, she has a hissy fit. She flutters back and forth from one tree to the other, guarding her nest and expressing to us in no uncertain terms that her nest is not to be disturbed. And then last Monday, we heard the peeps, tiny beaks popping up each morning, hoping for groceries. And sometimes mother comes, sometimes dad delivers, though we've noticed that dad, when he comes, he, he usually just sits and stares. <laughs> as dads often do. He has no remote, he just sits and stares. But we have been very impressed with that mother robin who instinctively and exhaustively gives herself completely to those hatchlings. Sherry, my wife, has placed foam cushions now beneath the nest so that when the fledglings take their trial flight, if they have a crash landing, they'll have a soft spot. And if you know my wife, she has maternal instincts. And every day we look out, nature itself is pointing our minds and hearts to our Creator who has designed these majestic creatures with intuition and impulse. I told one of my clergy friends this the other day, and he said, well, I think it's a sign of aging when you start bird watching. I said, yeah, I'm a little afraid of that too, because next I know binoculars and then Bermuda shorts, and it's just <laughs> not going well after that. But seriously, most of us in this room, most of us, maybe all of us, I was, we, we were taught to refer to God as Father. Jesus did, Abba, it means Daddy, and I think that's true. But I've discovered that God has a lot of mother in him too. You say, give me some scripture, okay? Isaiah 66, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, says the Lord. How about Jesus in Matthew's gospel weeping over Jerusalem the night before he would give his life and weeping over the city, he says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks but you wouldn't come. I can make a case in the New Testament for the fact that Jesus had a maternal instinct. I imagine he got it from his mother who was deeply faithful. And I've discovered that the church has that too. Have you ever heard of Bishop Cyprian, third century, early church father, Bishop of Carthage, Tunisia, this is Northern Africa, who 1,700 years ago made this statement, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. It's an interesting statement. What's he talking about? He's talking about nesting. Koinonia is the word we used. Community, oneness, family. Everybody needs a nest, don't we? Everybody needs a, a place of nurture. Everybody needs a place of formation. We all need roots, and we need wings. 
And the church, I think, is our nest. In fact, if you were listening closely, watching closely to our seniors in the video, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about a sense of community. In a sense, I think in this letter, Paul had lost his nest. He must have been like a bird in a cage. This man who had traveled the world, sailed the world, preaching the gospel for the joy of it, knowing his context now, he's incarcerated, I would expect him in this letter to lament his condition. I would expect him to say something like this. This is the Revised Chapel version. My imprisonment is threatening my faith. You all need to boycott the emperor, picket for my immediate release, otherwise I'm going to revoke my calling. I'm out of here. I'm going to quit Jesus. But that's not at all what he says. Listen to what he says. I want you to know, dear friends, that what has happened to me has actually served to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my incarceration is for Christ and most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now daring to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. That's different from what you expect. What is he doing? Bemoaning his suffering? No. He's interpreting it. That's what pastors often do as well. In fact, it reminds me of one of the psychoanalysts I remember studying in college, maybe you did, the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, who once said, and I quote, suffering that is not understood is hard to bear, while on the other hand, it is often astounding to see how much a person can endure when he or she understands the whys and the wherefores. When you remember Paul's Damascus Road conversion, you remember that, when Jesus appeared to him in a bright light, do you remember that Jesus said to him, I am going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. In other words, there's going to be a cross involved if you follow me, and I for one can tell you it comes with the frock. But the truth is, we don't always understand the whys and wherefores. But we learn to trust even when we don't understand. Paul's suffering doesn't undo his faith. It actually fortifies it. It's amazing. I've seen it happen in some of you. You remember what he wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, God's grace is sufficient for me for his power is, listen, made perfect in weakness. Indeed, when I am weak, then I'm strong. In other words, here's what he's saying. My chains are not hindering the gospel. They're actually promoting it. You say, how is that possible? When he was in Rome under house arrest, he was chained. The word for chains is halulus. It's a bond that he wore cuffed to his link to one of the imperial soldiers. You say, who are the imperial soldiers? Caesar's hand-picked troops. Rome's finest. So if Paul was in Rome for two years, imprisoned, which we think he was, then every day for two years, that's 730 days, he was chained 
to one of Rome's finest, which meant that the apostle had a captive audience through which he could share the gospel. It's advancing right into Caesar's household. And what's happening is that God is accomplishing more in his captivity than he was in his freedom. That's amazing. That's God. And furthermore, Paul says others who have been persecuted and are struggling for their faith, they're becoming bolder. By my example, says Paul. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, and this is, this is above my understanding that he could say this, he goes so far to say that his own rivals and opponents who were using his imprisonment as a way to put him down or one-up themselves over him, he says, what does it matter? At least they're still preaching the gospel. As long as they're proclaiming Christ, I don't care what they think or what they say about me. And herein lies another benefit that comes with suffering. It gives perspective. It helps us discern what is essential from what is non-essential. The church historically sometimes majors on minors and minors on majors. God's Spirit helps us to discern the primary from the secondary. In fact, if you listen to the prayer, we shared this last week. This is Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Listen to Paul's prayer in the Thanksgiving section. You've heard this, but listen again. This is my prayer for you, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and insight to help you discern what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Christ for the glory and praise of God so that you can discern what is best. I tell you, the most difficult thing to discern is not between good and bad. It's between good and best. I find myself over and over again trying to discern, to decide sometimes between the lesser of two evils and the better of two goods. It requires Solomonic wisdom and nothing less than the Holy Spirit. It's perspective. And when trouble comes and when pain comes, when diagnoses come, and they will, perspective is given. I don't know about you, but the most teachable moments that I have in my life are between a rock and a hard place. And I'm there a lot. I'm familiar with the territory, and you are too. I was reading an article last week. Get the title. I love this. The Freedom of Not Knowing Everything. We could use a dose of that. The article quotes from David Zoll's new book, which is called Low Anthropology, in which he says these words, and I quote, listen to this. Our addiction to control ends up controlling us. Not hearing any amens in the congregation. (laughs) And what Paul is saying, Paul is implying that there are times when life is out of control. When it seems that life is slipping away, but God is 
still at work, he's saying. God is at work in imperceptible ways. He's still guiding. He's still nesting. He's still nurturing. He's still providing. He's still abiding. He's still persevering. He's still advancing even in my chains. And we discover through perspective that sometimes setbacks become God's set up for something beautiful. Let me put it this way. Your perspective can either become your prison or your passport. And for Paul, passport. His perspective about Jesus turned his cell into a sanctuary. It turned his incarceration into incarnation. It turned his captivity into epiphany. It turned his detention into deliverance. And the man even came to the point of saying, look, I'm hard-pressed to decide between whether or not I want to be released or executed, acquitted or done away with, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. In other words, either way, I win If I make it, I get to be with you. If I don't, I'll be with Christ. It's a win-win. Paul has an instinctive trust in the Father, and the Father has a maternal instinct for him. I have a confession to make, and I hope you won't think less of me for sharing it. I must tell you, I talk way too much about my grandson. It's shameful. I understand that. I'm not really sorry. (laughs) I'm completely unrepentant about it. I have no pictures today. I promised you only once a month. No pictures today. But five months ago, I've now begun to discover why some of you all get so gaga about your grandchildren. I understand it. It's beautiful. But I've also discovered there's something maybe even more beautiful than your grandchildren, and that's watching your daughter become a mother. That's amazing. I'm not sure we would have given you a nickel for that about 12 years ago. (laughs) It's amazing. It's remarkable. In fact, we're going to baptize that little fella in three weeks at this altar. And I know at that moment all eyes will be on the baby as they should be, but my eyes will be on that girl who has become a mother and is now giving her child a nest with roots and wings. She's becoming selfless. And when I see it, it's holy, (laughs) it's instinctive. It's majestic, and it reminds me of the father who has a maternal instinct for us. The chicks on our front porch, not gonna be there much longer. They're growing fast. I've read in Google, which is the mother load of all knowledge, that within about a week, they're gonna fly away. Their lifespan, Robin's only two years, Who knows where they'll wind up? Maybe Franklin. Maybe they'll go to Nolansville. 
The ambitious ones make it to Nashville. A lot of strange birds do. (laughs) Present company excluded, of course. But wherever they land, wherever they roost, wherever they nest, it won't change the fact that they once found a birthplace, a shelter with us, and their roots will always be on our front porch. And they'll find their wings. Apparently, God is also a bird lover. Jesus said, not a robin will fall to the ground without my awareness. And if God loves birds like that, how do you think he feels about you? God has a maternal instinct. And from my perspective, from my perspective, so do you. So do we. And when we use it intentionally and indiscriminately, it brings joy to the Father and to you. May it be so. In Jesus' name.